You know, while we're waiting for everybody to get sat down, I'll tell you a story. Do you know that you can determine how much magnesium is in your soil by how thick the mud sticks to your boot before you can kick it off? Really? You can measure the, the inches of mud that sticks to your boot before you can actually kick it, you know, and kick it. I've seen guys, their whole boot came off because they couldn't. <laughs> you, can, you can buy how much mud, how, how thick it will get before it'll kick off you can get a pretty close estimation of how much magnesium is in your cell. When we get the magnesium, we'll, we'll see why that, why that actually is. People ask me all the time, well, is there any other way to, to determine um, you know, what the conditions are? Yeah, there's lots of ways. We have a heritage that's dying rapidly of people that have observed nature. This is what we should be doing. They've observed nature, and I'll share some of these things. I won't share it all here, but um, the problem is that if you want to wait, you know, 10, 15, 20 years until you get enough observation in, if somebody's already observed those things, if somebody already knows how to measure those things and determine what, what the conditions are, well, it's up to you if you want to do that that way. Nobody's telling you you can't. But I would much rather have the information as fast as I can get it so I can make the corrections uh, as quickly as I can as well. Okay, got everybody here, or most everybody? Let's start on the second part of this, which is of get, uh, looking at the soil and getting the model right, which is the guiding principles from science. What God said is consistent with what he made. And sometimes we want to take what he made and determine what he said, but we don't understand what he made. Or sometimes we want to determine what, how things should be in real life, but we don't understand what he said. And we get ourselves all mixed up. Again, we're back into a world of confusion. Like we are. You know what the difference is, by the way? The Bible says that God is not the God of confusion, but the God of peace. What do those two things have to do with each other? They're not really, you know, contradictory adjectives, I guess you could put it that way, opposing ones. What, when, you, when you have confusion, do you have peace? No, you have chaos. I mean, you have disruption and everything. When you have peace, that's because there's understanding, there's knowledge and there's understanding. And so things become a lot more settled. And stable, by the way. Well, we're going to look at that, you know. That nature abhors instability. It wants balance. It wants stability. It wants peace. And it will do everything in its power to do that. The problem is that we've taken a lot of its means of doing that away through the curse of sin. Okay. Here, we're not getting this. We're not getting a very good color. But anyway. Here is what is probably considered the universal model on a, from a scientific standpoint, uh, uh, the universally accepted ideal soil. It is about 45% mineral, about 5% organic matter, which we'll talk about, um, and then, or, or in other words, half of it, half of that soil is solid, and the other half then is pore space and uh, air, and of that half, about uh, half of the pore space is filled with water, or 25% of the total and 25% is air. This is, this is universally considered the ideal soil. I've never come across anybody that, that, that disagrees with this model. Has anybody seen this before, by the way? Um, so let's say you're, um, I don't know if Ian asked this question when he was in any of his classes, but uh, say you're a freshman in, in college and you're, you're taking agronomy and you're looking at this and the, your professor tells you this is the ideal soil. 
and you raise your hand and you say, okay, well, if I don't have that ideal soil, how do I get it? You know what his, does anyone want to hazard a guess what his answer will be? Did they ever, do you ever ask that question? Did anybody ever ask that question? They, never, they, never they didn't even bring it up. They don't even bring it up any, They don't even bring it up anymore because they can't answer the question. They're going to tell you, well, you're just stuck with whatever you have. We don't know how to get this ideal soil. So you're just stuck with whatever you have. In other words, you're just whoever you are and there's nothing you can do about it. Just enjoy life. You're an individual. Yeah, you're an individual, right? Yeah. Well, we're going to touch on that when we get to the, the, the organic school of thought here. Um, so they're going to tell you, is that, would that give you hope? It wouldn't give me hope. I, got, I know there's enough things about me that I, I would, that, that I don't like the way they are, and I would like them to be a different way. I would like them to be more ideal. But that's what you're being told. In so many ways, you are being told, this is the ideal, but it's really out of reach. It's, it's impossible. It's not, it's not attainable. Yeah. Is the 5% organic? Yeah. yeah, I have here a 5%. Now, this is, you'll see variations in this. Um, when I put organic material there, what I'm actually saying is, and we're going to get into it when we get into carbon fertility, I'm talking about stable humus, stable organic matter. Um, not total organic matter, but it's really representing um, what's called humus or stable organic matter. That's what you're shooting for. Um, you'll see some models that have 5 to 10% there and 40 to 45% um, mineral. Um, either one of them works great, so, and you'll see why when, when we get on to those things. So is that statement true? Do you believe that that statement is true? I hope it's not true. That there's nothing you can do about it. The truth is there's, that a lot of people don't want you to know what to do about it. We do know how to achieve that soil. Not only in spiritual terms, but we know how to do it practically. And this has been demonstrated for, this is now, has been demonstrated for nearly a hundred years. All over the world. Not just in any one place. And it's been demonstrated in every major food crop. It's been demonstrated in every minor food crop. It's been demonstrated in agroforestry. It's been demonstrated in landscaping. Um, there is no area that it hasn't been demonstrated in. Has anybody, has anybody heard of that model? It's called the Albrecht model. Has anybody heard of it? Actually heard of it? You've heard of it, but you may, you may not know what it, actually, what it actually is. How does it spell? A-L-B-R-E-C-H-T. Um, and let me give you a little bit of background about it. And then we're going to go into the different schools of thought and, and we'll touch on it. Dr. Albrecht worked at the University of Missouri and from starting in the 19, early 1920s, actually in the teens he started, and did most of his work up through 1950, him and his researchers. And what he wanted to know, and it's fascinating to read some of his material because uh, if he wasn't a Christian, I don't know, he never really spout, you know, he never really elaborated on that or anything, but he was always about learn from nature, don't dictate to it. Um, and go to nature and let it instruct you don't go to the lab 
and let the lab instruct you. Because he was told all the time that the methodology he developed, well, people argued with him and said, oh, well, plants can't do that. And he said, I can't do it in the lab. But the plant can do it. And just because we don't know the, understand how the plant is doing it, that doesn't mean because that we have authority over what is easily observable in nature because we can't do it in the lab. He said that's irrelevant that we can't do it in the lab. There's a lot of things we can't do in life. He said but we, it happens in life anyway. Um, so anyway, over those decades, what they basically did is they observed the most fertile soils in the world. And they, 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 took, they did analysis of them to see what they were made up of. They took humus, this organic, this stable organic matter, and they analyzed it. And they saw what it was made of. Um, and then that was what they, they, that's what they started shooting for. Okay, is that the ideal? Um, or is there something different than that? And what they, what they discovered was that, um, by and large, stable humus is what has that model. But they weren't satisfied with that. They discovered, and we're going to get into it here in a minute, about cation exchange. We're going to look at how the soil actually works. How it actually works. It's not my theory about how it works. This is soil research at university level is done based on this modeling all the time. They couldn't do it otherwise. They try to do it a lot otherwise in a lot of different ways, but uh, they understand what this modeling is. The interesting thing is, is that this information is not disseminated to the agricultural community. And we're going to get to why. Yeah, why? Why? You're shaking your head. Why? Why when, when I first came into the church and I learned the health message, it just blew my mind. And I'll share a little bit about that on Friday night. But um, I asked the question, why are they not teaching this stuff in public school? Why is it the information not being disseminated? Well, you'll understand that there's more, there's more profit to be made from dysfunction than there's function. There's more benefit to some from, from managing sin than, yeah, to, than from, from solving the problem, from removing the problem. And you'll see if you look across the, the, the different disciplines, we manage problems. That's what we do. We manage problems. We don't solve them. God's about solving problems. You know, that's part of salvation. It's not just a, a, a judicial act. It's an executive act. God is going to change our lives. He's going to solve the problem of sin. He's not just going to cover it. He's going to solve that problem. Anyway, um, they took, they were able to extract what is called a, the colloidal clay from the soil. And they discovered, and we're going to get into it a little bit, but anyway, they were able to extract that and they were able to put, take off and put on different combinations of cations onto that, those colloids and then grow stuff in it. And they got to the place where they could take animals, uh, they could create disease, they could take it away, they could make animals infertile and restore them to fertility, all based on how that was all put together. They perfected it, I mean, over 30, 40 years. And so after doing all that work, they came to the conclusion of what, see, because we don't know the detail here. But we need to know the detail here in order to get, you know, understand how this, how this works right. And so they figured the detail out on that. Now, I'm not saying that we have every single detail because 
There, uh, there's tons of research that's out there, but it's buried because nobody wants you to know it. Um, but we honestly, you know, every element that God created has a purpose. And we don't understand the purpose on a lot of those. But I can tell you, so we, I can, I'm going to share what we know. And I'm going to also share a little bit about um, how I deal with what we don't know. But there are rare earth elements that in just parts per billion can double and triple lifespan. In parts per billion. They can reduce energy consumption by a massive amount. We don't even know how they do it. But the research, some research has already been done on that. And so, you know, we don't, Dr. Albright never got to that place because um, the time came for the green revolution, as they call it, the chemical revolution. And uh, basically what it came down to, we didn't need to build bombs to destroy things anymore, so we had to come up with a way after World War II to maintain that industry. Um, and so they looked at who uses nitrogen, because you know, you build bombs with nitrogen. And you know, what else uses nitrogen? What could we, who could we sell this stuff to? And they you know, looked at the farmers because they knew plants use nitrogen and everything and sold it to the farmers. Um, and then it looked wonderful because stuff started growing like crazy, better than it was, lush green growth and everything like that. And then um, it started falling over. They call it lodging. So if you grow grain or something like that, it gets up. They've actually breed, bred wheat now, so it only stands about this tall. You know, where it used to stand this tall. And now it has heads about that big, and it used to have heads this big. Um, there are growers right now producing 400 bushels the acre of wheat. That's about four times what anybody, you know, the best of what other people are doing. Um, but they're using old varieties. They're using the old varieties, and they're giving them what they needed in fertility. Anyway, um, but everything started falling over. So they grow their wheat, their grain crop, and, and it would lodge. It'd fall over, and they couldn't go in and harvest it. So they said, well, this is great. It's growing great and everything, but, you know, we're not really being able to harvest the crop. So they went back into the lab, and they already knew this, but they went back and pretended like they were uh, researching it again. And what they discovered was, well, you don't have enough potassium now. And so you need to supplement more potassium. Well, they use potassium in, in the war machine, too. So they... That comes from wood ash. It can. Mm -hmm. He asked the question, does that come from wood ash, potassium? But yes, it, it can. Um, so they started, they started supplying potassium, and so they, they eliminated the lodging problem but, you know, a lot of this, this, this crop was being produced to feed the livestock or to people, but primarily a lot of it was being fed to livestock. And the next problem they had is they stopped reproducing. The animals couldn't reproduce anymore. And the, the, so the farmers went back to the, the, these guys again and said, hey, this is great, but, you know, we can't make a living anymore because, you know, the animals won't reproduce. So they go back into the lab and they come out with the conclusion, which is correct, that there wasn't enough phosphate, enough phosphorus, in relation to the nitrogen and potassium. And so if you wonder where the NPK approach to agriculture came from, this is where it came from. Now, a whole host of other problems have developed since those three, um, which you can see all around you, in people's, people's health and animal health, plant health. Um, but that's where the modern NPK thing came from. But 
Dr. Albrecht opposed that. He said that is going to be a disaster because you're only focusing on a limited focus, and we're going to talk about it here in just a minute, what that focus is. Um, so they said, thank you, you can retire now. We don't need you anymore. And so they pretty much, you know, all of his work was buried. And because it, it wasn't favorable to what they wanted to do. And so it just got... They just got set aside. And then they had plenty of people come out. Actually, they only had two people that uh, wrote papers in opposition to what's called the Albrecht approach or the cation exchange model. They had two people, one of them was one of his students, um, that wrote saying that it didn't work and it wasn't necessary and it didn't matter and everything. And then all the papers that have been written since then were all based on those two papers. Nobody has actually gone and done any demonstrative research to oppose it. One researcher actually did go in and he did trials to see what was the most productive um, growing system method approach um, and it was the Albrecht approach with compost tea. Was the most, the Albrecht system by itself was the most productive next to adding the compost tea. And we'll talk about that in carbon, carbon fertility. Uh, of why that why that made the difference that it made. So, what was the name of the researcher? Um, I don't have it with me. I always forget his name. He did the research in um, in Texas, at the AR, in West Laco, Texas. Um, they weren't too excited about his conclusions, but he was retired and he didn't care. So, uh, so anyway, like I said, he was. He was forced into retirement, and there's actually only one living person now. He died in uh, 1976, I believe. Uh, Dr. Reams, was No, no. Um, we can touch on that. Dr. Reams, Carrie Reams, um, was approaching it from a different perspective, and a lot, of, a lot of what he did had value. There was a weak spot in what he did, though, um, and it has to do with the capacity of the soil. He, he never came, came to understand that, you know, like the parable of the talents, or the 30, the 60, and the 100 fold, there is a capacity that the soil has to hold fertility. And that has to be addressed. And if you don't address that, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and that's what you saw with, 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 the, with um, his approach. Um, he contributed a lot of positive things to it. So I'm not, I'm not being negative towards um, Dr. Reams. It's just that there was a component that's missing, and without it, you, you um, I keep trying, because a lot of people come at me with all kinds of things. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And they ask me, like, have you heard of the, um, the Back to Eden method? Has anybody heard of it over here? Okay. Um, again, we always take aspects of something, and we overemphasize them. We don't ask, are the conditions right for this to be beneficial? We just think that this can solve every problem we have. And it's just that's a mistaken way of a mistaken way of looking at it. So there, yes, it's a wonderful approach under certain conditions, but under other conditions, and if, when we get to that, maybe I'll share an illustration of a friend of mine who found out. Um, so this is this is the modeling, but we've got to get some detail on it. Um, and you will be told that it doesn't matter if you ever talk to anybody in positions of authority. They will, and I'll tell you why they'll say that in a minute. We'll get to that, why they're going to say that. Um, but this is the modeling that we're after. And does anybody see those verses from Genesis in there? 
Do you see it? Do you see the dust of the earth and the breath over here? And this is actually, sometimes I put in here, I put biomass because, you know, that includes the living component of it. But this is testimony that's gone before. You know, if you ever read a book, that's what this is. You know, so if you read the Bible, that's what this is. There's a living witness, too, and that's what we need to have. We're going to get to that in carbon fertility. You know, the right way of increasing, of building oil in the lamp. You'll see, the right way of building oil in the lamp. Okay, here are some of the different schools of thought um, that you're going to be exposed to if you talk to anybody about this. Um, obviously, the conventional school of thought is selective chemistry. In other words, they use the NPK. What they're doing is, we're going to talk about it in this minute here, they're driving yield. Another term for that is photosynthetic growth, energy. They're just producing a lot of energy. Why are they doing that? Because what do, how do farmers get paid? They get paid by the bin. They get paid by the bushel. They get paid by the hundredweight. They get paid by volume, right? They don't get paid by quality. They get paid by the volume. By volume. And so they'll grow crop. They're going to be fed to animals and people, but they don't bother with any of the nutritional elements that are critical for animal and human health because they don't have to produce they don't have to in order to produce the crop um, so it's selective chemistry and what it results in is it, you know because they're using selective chemistry then they have to use rescue chemistry which are all the chemicals that have to use the interventions that have to come into play to deal with the fact that they're only using selective chemistry um, the organic school of thought carbon fertility organic matter so that's the the um, organic growers and things like that. And I have, I, I work with growers that are in, in pretty much every one of these categories. So I'm not picking on any of them saying, okay, these people are bad people and these people are good people. And no, they're, they're sincere people in every one of these schools of thought and they're people who just don't care in all, every room too. They just, they're just trying to, they want to make a living so they want to get as much as they can out of it. Um, and we're going to talk about that on Friday night, too, about imposed growth over imparted growth and, and what the difference is, what the, the results of that is. Okay, the biodynamic school of thought is based on, um, they're more based on energy flow, keeping the energy flow in the way it's supposed to be. Um, and I could go into what's being ignored on all of these. But there's different aspects being emphasized, and the others are being de-emphasized, and some are just outright being rejected or ignored. And the one I told you before is, is a standard. When it comes to the chemistry part of it, they all ignore that, or reject it even if it is important. Um, and I'll tell you, let me go down through this, and I'll tell you a story about this one here. Uh, and, it's, and it's the founder of that modern movement. Um, so anyway, they're dealing with the energy flow, and there must be coherent energy flow in the system in order for it to function well. So, and they know a lot about that, but they're still missing pieces of the puzzle. Um, the permaculture crowd, they're just really trying to keep what you have already. They're trying to prevent any more loss. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to preserve what they have from even greater loss than has already occurred on it. Um, they're not really, other than that, and, and practices that can help conserve soil and things like that, that's what they're focused on. They're not really focused on some of the other aspects like soil chemistry and, and those type of things. 
Um, the biological school of thought, this is the big one right now. It's superseded the organic movement now, is the, is the biological school of thought. And the idea is that soil biology, that all soils have all of the elements in them that are needed, and that the biology can, can extract those nutrients and make them available for growth. Um, that sounds great on the surface. And people bring me examples all the time, and it looks really good. But I ask the question, you know, in the States, and I don't know how it materialized here, but in the States, when the pilgrims came, they chopped trees down, forests down, and planted crops, and they got a great crop one year. And the next year, what did they have to do? They learned this lesson because they tried it next year. The next year, it failed. It all failed. So they chopped some more trees down, and they, they planted another hill there. Um, we, we, we have to talk about successional um, ecosystems here a little bit. We're not going to do it right now. Um, I think I'll get to it in a later thing. Um, if, why, I asked the question, why is that biology not endemic or inherent to that system already? Why are you having to add it? Is it because the conditions are not such that it can, it can exist there and thrive? So if you put that biology in, now it is technically true and I've studied, I've taken classes from the lady who is promoting this, Dr. Elaine Ingham. She's a wonderful person, she's very smart, but her foundational philosophy is evolution. Okay, you need to understand that first. And so that, that helps define uh, how she sees things. But it is technically true that every soil has every element in it. But not every soil is capable of making those nutrients available. And you can use biology I'll give an illustration. Ambassador College in Texas um, figured out a specific bacteria to extract that would stimulate growth. And they were growing these little scraggly carrots. You know, they couldn't grow really good carrots. And so they, they increased this bacteria and they added it to the soil. And the next year they grew carrots the size of your forearm. I'm not exaggerating. I saw pictures of them. The size of your forearm. Guess what happened the next year? They inoculated it again but they were back to scraggly little carrots. Because the biology had taken everything that could possibly be taken in that year. And let me ask you a question. Do you think that that growing system was left with an increased capacity or a decreased capacity? Yeah, they imposed growth on that system and they extracted life from it. And we're going to look at a lot of ways that this happens. And a lot of things, good intended people, use all kinds of ideas to, to uh, we use it, the truth is we use it in evangelism and outreach to people. We use all these methodologies that is really extracting. And it, we leave people in a worse place when we're done. We don't leave them in a better place. We leave them in a worse place. So it's really important that we learn these principles so that we know how we, to go about increasing life. You know, providing more abundant life for people. Um, hopefully I'm not going to lose my battery here. Let me just take a second and plug in. My battery is kind of wearing out. I was hoping it would last long enough. And you guys, you guys use different plugs than we do. So I gotta, I've got to use this adapter. There you go. Put that in. 
Okay. So, so let's look a little bit at how this, the soil, I, I didn't add in there the Albrecht model, okay, when I was looking at those different schools of thought, but that's basically based on a complete and balanced fertility system, based on how soil actually works, and observable, you know, observable data, repeatable data that was, was able to be demonstrated. You could demonstrate that this is how it actually works, and it works really well when it's properly constructed. So how does the soil actually work to provide nourishment to growing plants? The soil has what's called a colloidal exchange complex. And what I mean by colloidal or colloid is that it, it's, it's a very tiny, um, well, clay, humus, or root. It has a charge to it, but it also will suspend in water, and it won't settle out. I mean, over time it will. It'll eventually settle out, but it might take months or sometimes years for it to even settle out. It's very tiny. Um, but it has a charge to it. And it's, it's, the majority of that charge is negative. There is some positive charge with it. Um, and there is some variable charge to it depending on the soils that, that you're looking at uh, that all has to be taken into consideration. But basically, there's a colloidal exchange complex and that colloidal exchange complex holds nutrient elements on it. It's called what, it's called, Adsorption, not a B, but a D. Adsorption, not absorption. It doesn't actually absorb the, the nutrient elements into it. It actually just holds it on the surface. And the way Dr. Albrecht described this is, is the way what's happening here. It's, it's, it's held from leaching loss. It won't wash away with the water and be leached away. It is held there by that electrical charge um, against leaching. And so it's called insoluble because it won't leach, but it's available. In other words, the plants have access to it. It's held there as an available resource to the plant, and the plant has the means of, of taking those, exchanging, it's an exchange complex. In other words, there's one cation that's exchanged for another cation. So um, I don't want to get a long ways into this because you guys will just be swimming and saying, what in the world is he talking about when I, when I get into this? But I, the, the microbes, the microbes and the plant roots will actually exchange hydrogen for a nutritive cation. They're all called cations because they have a positive charge. Um, anions are negative char negatively charged, they have a negative charge to them. But it'll exchange a non-nutritive um, ion, hydrogen, for a nutritive one. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. Uh, those are the major ones. There's also the, the trace metals, of which you have you know, iron and manganese and zinc and copper. Um, that's the complex in which a lot of this works. You also have an organic matter or humus storage complex uh, in which nutritive elements are actually stored within the, the matrix of the organic matter or humus. And believe it or not, plants actually prefer, this is why uh, organic growing works well, because plants actually prefer those nutrients in that organic form. In other words, already built into the compound. Why do you think they would prefer it that way? Well, it takes energy to build that compound. And, and uh, plants, we'll talk about in carbon fertility, plants actually give away, they actually give away all of their work to build, to save energy, capture energy from the sun and save it. Not all of it, I'm sorry, but like when they're young, up to 75% and we'll get, the, we'll get in more detail in, with the carbon fertility, they give it away. They dump it out into the soil. They dump it out onto their leaves. Why are they doing that? 
they're actually fueling the, the biology in the soil. They're encouraging the biology in the soil to grow and to produce these organic compounds for them. And they're building a bank account so when they get to the point of reproductive growth, they can tap that bank account and, and finish out their mandate to bear fruit. Um, a lot of the, of the negatively stored what are called anions, which would be nitrogen, we're going to look at each of these things, but nitrogen and, and um, sulfur, phosphorus, um, boron, those elements which have a negative charge to them, they're actually held in this, primarily in this complex. There is some held on the, on the colloidal exchange complex, but in the, the organic matter storage complex, most of the, the uh, anions are, are stored that way. The question was, if I understand it, is, is can elements transmutate? Is that what you're asking? So, in other words, can they, can they go from one kind of element to another kind of element? Well, in radioactivity that happens, but I'm not, I don't believe that that was part of God's original design. I think it's a flaw, it, it, because nothing that God did was not good. Uh, yeah, there's some, there is some thought out there uh, in this idea of this transmutation where one element can be converted by, that the biology in the soil has the, the ability somehow or another to um, transmutate, say, potassium into magnesium or, or things like that. I haven't seen sufficient evidence of that. Um, I don't believe that that happens. Um, I think things happen that we, we, we um, associate as that, but I don't think that that's what's actually happening. But I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to stand here and say definitively, no, that actually doesn't happen. It doesn't fit with the principles, I can say that. It doesn't really fit with the principles, and so I would be very, I, I would have to have, have a lot of questions answered before I would accept something like that. Um, it's like changing one characteristic into another characteristic. If you put it that way. So sometimes when you think about it in a different way, I don't know, does, does God's character transmutate? I mean, does it, I don't, I don't think that that, I don't think so, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you definitively, I, I just absolutely, I just couldn't accept it unless I had a whole lot better information in relation to that. Okay, and then the other way that it happens is microbial action and interaction. In other words, the, the microbes in the soil actually extract nutrients from the parent material, from the rocks, the, the uh, mineral part of it, the uh, part of the soil, they actually use exudates, different or organic acids. Uh, they actually use hydrogen a lot, if you, when you go and start looking at it, um, to break nutrients out of that parent soil and make them available to the, to the plant. Um, we don't have the time to go into the detail of it, but it's one reason why you don't want neutral soil. You want slightly acidic soil so that, that that acidity actually transfers from the colloid, the exchange complex, uh, onto the mineral, the mineral complex, and that's what helps break down the parent material and make stuff available out of it. And you can actually, th that's what the biological school of thought does. They, they, they go after the parent material and they break it out. But again, you're leaving it in a, in a, in a lower position of growth, capacity for growth. You're not, you're not increasing capacity, you're lowering it in doing that. You're extracting something out of it, you're getting something out of it, but you're leaving it in a worse position. You'll see when we look at the colloidal exchange complex too, that by destroying that exchange complex, by degrading it, you can produce crops. But eventually, you just each time, it's like, um, let's see, do I cover that? Um, 
different kinds of clays. An expandable clay, which is a, is a colloid, an expandable clay has, and I'll just do it, has an exchange capacity, and just think of the number comparison, don't worry about getting into the technicality too much, an exchange capacity of as much as 200, you know, say 100, 100 to 200. Uh, a degraded expandable clay, when it becomes a non-expandable clay, has an exchange capacity of 10 to 40, maybe as high as 80. And it's in this de degradation process, in an extractive process, by destroying the exchange complex, it orphans nutrients. They have nowhere to be absorbed anymore. And so it orphans those nutrients off into the soil solution and you get growth out of it. And the farmers who do it think, boy, I'm the, I'm the man. I, you know, I know what I'm doing. I get all these great crops that I'm getting. But the day will come when everything will collapse on them. And that's, it's happening now. I mean, more and more problems are materializing. Um, as a result of these extractive methods, of these imposed you know, methods of growth on the, on the system, rather than understanding the way it works and actually building it, you know, continuing to maintain its level or increasing it. If I have time, I'll talk about, this is the first time I've seen it happen. It's, an, it's possible to rebuild capacity. It's not an easy thing to do, but I actually have it happening on my farm right now. And it's causing me problems, but it's also, you know, it's exciting at the same time. Yeah. Can you just clarify if colloidal exchange is different from cation exchange, or are they a similar term? Um, there, uh, I'm talking about the colloidal exchange complex here. We're going to get into cation exchange, which is basically what's happening on this complex. Right. You're going to get an exchange of uh, a cation exchange on it. It's negatively charged. Cations are positively charged, and so they're they're adsorbed or held in this complex. So we're going to look at that cation exchange capacity here in just a second. Okay. I haven't lost anybody yet, have I? Okay, so now we have to look at the difference between photosynthetic production and biosynthetic production. Most of the crops that are grown today are grown based on photosynthetic production. Remember I said it, they're not concerned which is just is bizarre to me, but the, the growers are not concerned on making sure that the nutri nutri nutritive elements are available that are necessary for animal and human health. They're only concerned with the nutrients that are necessary to produce carbonaceous bulk. They're just storing up energy. It's primarily energy and calories. That's why so many people, at least in the States, are having a problem with, with obesity, with, with weight gain because we're producing massive amounts of calories and no ability to burn them. No ability to do anything with them. And just imagine, it's not just energy that's burnt, it's construction material. Just like you would take a tree and you would cut it into, into lumber and you would build a house with it. It's constructive material as well, but you can't do anything with it. So the body just stores it up, and stores it up, and stores it up, and you keep, you're, you, the body keeps telling you you're hungry, and you're hungry, and you're hungry, because you're not getting everything you're supposed to be getting, and you just keep accumulating this, but you don't have the... Uh, it's yield-driven because, again, farmers get paid by the bin and the bushel by volume, by weight. They don't get paid by quality. Um, this is not what you want to do, okay? What happens here is if you're in the livestock industry, if you're raising livestock, the livestock growers, the, the people who raise livestock, they know that the people producing their feed are not bothering to do any of that. And so they're having to supplement the animals, all the, the nutritive elements, to keep them alive. Forget reproducing and bearing fruit. They just need to keep them alive until they can slaughter them. 
Um, I remember running across a guy, he just flew by me in New Mexico one time, it was a semi with um, cows from a dairy going to the slaughterhouse. And I, you know, I had a CB and I said to the guy, hey, you know one of your cows is upside down back there? He said, no, don't, he was in, he flew by me and he was racing to the, they were all, they were all sick animals, okay? And he was racing, trying to get to the slaughterhouse before they went down. Because once they go down, you can't kill them. Um, so he was just racing to try to get there. And then one animal was upside down. He was done already in the, in the back of it. But the reality is, is that we're not producing nutritious food. We're, we're, we're not producing nourishment. We're producing calories, is a large percent of it. Now, when you get into produce growing, you have to have some of these other nutritive elements, or you will not succeed. You're just not going to be able to grow it. We'll look at those as we go along. Anyway, what you really want is biosynthetic growth. It produces mineralized, proteinaceous bulk, which allows for growth, maturity, and the bearing of fruit, a reproduct reproduction. It's a complete food source, and it's quality-driven, not yield-driven. Um, you can get high yields with biosynthetic growth. Now, remember I said that if you talk to you know, any of the so-called experts, they would say that this whole system doesn't matter. Why would they tell you that? Because in one way it doesn't matter. Because what they're saying to you is, it won't affect the yield. That's what they're saying to you. The cation exchange complex, the cation exchange model doesn't matter because it won't affect the yield. That's what they're saying. They're not going to say that to you. Uh, you know, why, why they're saying it doesn't matter. But that's why they're saying it doesn't matter, because it won't affect the yield. You can get high yield by driving photosynthetic growth, but you will not get, you will not get life, a continuation and increase in life out of that, because it's not, there to, it's not there to be had. This is the goal of the model we're talking about, is biosynthetic growth. You get the energy along with everything else that's necessary for life on it. Oh, by the way, you know, um, people are not always as mindful as those who raise livestock. The people who raise livestock, because it's their livelihood, they realize that they have to do all that supplementing. You know, a lot of people don't even think about it. They just assume that the food that they're getting is going to provide everything that they need. And all you have to do is look at the health condition of society to know that that's simply not true. And these guys here, you know, a lot of growers, they're just, they're using interventions you know, chemical interventions, rescue chemistry, to keep the crop alive so they can get it harvested and pass the problem on to somebody else. And so they pass it on to you as a consumer, you eat the food, and now you have to have all kinds of interventions to deal with the, the, the failure of being given complete and balanced nourishment. And we see that too. I mean, healthcare is exploding. Um, and interesting in the states, I don't know what the the the, the, the money, what, how the it would come out here, but you know, 50 years ago we were spending, we're spending half as much on food now as we were 50 years ago, half as much. Uh, and there's a there's a reason for the, for this, um, but we're spending at least six times, at least six times on healthcare now, and that's not counting all the money that's spent on supplements, all the money that's spent on diet foods, all the money that's spent on all the all the mental health issues. And all of that, the social disruption and everything, productivity disruption, it's not counting any of that. Um, I will share an experience with you that actually is from Australia. Uh, this is probably a good place to do it. There's a dairy farm. I can't remember where it is here in Australia. Anyway, they were milking about 1,000 cows. And they 
we're having all kinds of problems. You'll see when I get to the numbers on here. Um, and they were exposed to the, the cation exchange model, Albrecht's model, and they decided that they were going to commit to you know, straightening out because they produced all their own feed. So they were going to commit to straightening the fertility of the soil out. Four years later, they were making a million dollars a year more. A million dollars a year more. I assume that's Australian because they were here in Australia. Um, the, the interesting thing is where they were getting, where the money was coming from. They were making about 200,000 more because of, it wasn't from milk quantity, because they're already pushing those cows to produce massive amounts of, of, of quantity. It was in quality. The cream content was higher, and so they were being paid a premium because the, the, the cream content was higher in the milk. Um, but 800,000, four-fifths of that increased million dollars, four-fifths of it, $800,000, was from money they saved from vet bills and drugs. $800,000 went into their pocket. I tell people when they say they can't afford nutritious food because it's more expensive, every animal feed study I've ever seen in my life um, demonstrates that the higher the quality the nutrition is, the less you eat. And the, the better you grow. And so I tell people, I mean, it's an educational process to try to help people understand these things. I said, the better you eat, even if it costs you a little bit more, because it's going to cost you more. It's going to cost because you have to put all these things back. We've been taking them for a long time, and we haven't been putting them back. Um, but if you, if you pay that, you're going to eat less, so it all averages out. And I said, Your that's not even counting the quality of life. What you're going to save on health care, you know, if you have insurance, and it's kind of insulates you from the reality of what it really costs. And so, um, but all that gets saved. And so that can, go to that can go to increasing life rather than trying to just manage the loss of life and everything. It's a tremendous benefit. In the overall scheme of things, life is just in a way much better, you know, that doesn't make sense, uh, a way better place than it is otherwise the way we have it now. We're spending, I have growers who spend this much on interventions and this much on fertility. You got to turn that around. Yeah. You have to turn it around. And we could go into more on that, but this is what we're shooting for here. We're not, I'm not, this is not what I want. You will get this in this, but in appropriate levels. Um, but this is what we want. We don't want this. But this is what's primarily practiced. And that's why you'll be told it doesn't matter um, because they're talking about yield. They're not talking about quality. The model is designed to feed the soil and let the soil feed the crop. Do you remember when we read that quote about seek ye first the kingdom of heaven? and its righteousness and all these other things would be added to you. This is saying the exact same thing. Address the character of the soil. Address your own character and then let that character feed life. Let that character determine what fruit's going to be born here. So that's what we're trying to do. We're not, so when I make recommendations, I don't make recommendations for the crop you're growing. I take it into consideration uh, primarily for nitrogen reasons, but the model is the same. It doesn't matter what crop you're growing. And if we have time, I'll use some illustrations on some more extreme cases, like blueberries. I do a lot of work with blueberries. And if anybody knows about blueberries, they tell you that. Somebody tell me, what do they tell you if, if you know about blueberries? What, how do you have to grow them? On acid soil. That's what you're always told. Always told. That is not true. They'll tolerate that. They will tolerate that. They don't love it. Who was talking to me about certain crops loving? Yeah. 
They say that certain cops love certain conditions. They tolerate them. I wouldn't use the word love. They tolerate them. The best crop grows on a complete and balanced soil. I don't care what it is, um, but we could get into the blueberry thing. I've, I've challenged uh, authorities on this to please explain to me why that has to be and nobody can give me an answer. It's just the way it is. And you're supposed, supposed to do it because that's what we told you to do. Um, I get myself in trouble a lot, if you can tell. <laughs> uh, I don't try to, by the way. I don't try to be antagonistic. I try to, I, I, you know, the reformers just ask honest questions. The reformers just ask honest questions. The problem is that the questions exposed some pretty ugly things. And so, five minutes, okay. All right, so, uh, well, so how do you know what you have or what you don't have? Well, I mentioned before that uh, you can learn, like one of my favorite ones is this, this old farmer said, boy, this field walks easy. What do you think he meant by when he said, this field walks easy? Does anybody have any ideas? What happened, if it was walking easy, what happened under his foot when he walked? It gave, didn't it? It, it? it was more of a cushioned feel. Well, what he was saying to you is the calcium level in the soil is really good because calcium flocculates the soil. And it, creates, it, creates, it almost creates a, what you would call like a sponge effect, just like organic matter does. And the way it, we're, we're going to look at it in, in some future slides here, but in, in essence, it, it creates that, that cushion. And so you can drive tractors over it, you can walk over it, and it'll collapse it, but it'll eventually just push itself right back up to where it's supposed to be. But he's saying that if you walk on a field and it's hard, well, the calcium is low for sure. Uh, the magnesium may be too high because magnesium we're going to look at in a minute. So I won't go into too much of that. But somehow or another, you need to be able to uh, determine, okay, what, it, what is the condition that I have and what is the condition that I want? So that you can see where the deficit or the excess is. I'm going to use uh, one of John Dysinger's soil tests um, here. I don't think he'll mind. I, was, I meant to ask him. Uh, I wanted a strawberry one because I do the soil fertility for them. Um, I wanted a strawberry one because I wanted to illustrate some stuff on it, but I can't remember which one is the strawberries. He, he routinely forgets to send me a note of which sample is what's being grown where. So, so if you'll see on the soil test when I put it up there, I have vegetables with a question mark after it. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll use his soil test to illustrate some of this stuff. The one that I have on here, you just can't see it really well. I'll, I'll show you. It's, it, you can't, it's just didn't work out really well. So I'm going to pull that up. But we have to have some way to measure what the conditions are, don't we? I mean, we have to do that with Christ, don't we? We have to, it, when, we, when we look at his life, then that tells us something about our condition. It tells us, you know, where our deficits are. And you can have excesses and you can have deficits. You can have high capacity soils that are imbalanced and, um, and the best illustration is like this. We, we can have a person who's wonderful at doing evangelism, but they're physically and verbally abusive to their children and, and their spouse at home. Now, if you didn't, you know, and I wouldn't be personally picking on any individual as a result of that, that's just reality. We see one aspect of it, but we don't see the other necessarily. And so we have to know what are we, you know, we have to know what are the conditions and what should they be. And we have to look at the whole picture because 
John Muir, I don't know if anybody knows him, he was a uh, um, naturalist in the U.S. to be pretty well-known worldwide. But he said, when you tug on anything in nature, you find out it's attached to everything else. And so we can't just look at one thing and say, and that's what people tend to do. They just look at one thing. That's why we have so many denominations, by the way. They take one thing and they just emphasize it uh, to the detriment of other things. Um, The fastest way to know that condition, at least in practical terms this way, is via a a competent soil test. Um, I don't know any other convenient way around it. And the way I look at it is, if we have that resource available to us, and it's demonstrated itself to be value, have value, so that we have the information that we need, because you need to have good information. If you have good information, you can make good decisions. If you don't have good information, the decisions you make are only as good as the information you had. So if it's, if it's unreliable information, your decisions are going to be unreliable. And then the outcomes are going to be the same. The outcomes you're not, are going to be unpredictable. You don't know what's really going to happen because the information you started with to make the decisions um, are going to determine the outcome. And so if you want good outcomes, you have to have good information to make the decisions about. So uh, how am I doing on time? Am I about done? Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll, in the next one, we'll look at, we'll look at this a little bit. Uh, we're going to go into the different nutrition, nutri- nutritive elements. Um, and then we'll talk about this a little bit more in relation to that. So, is there any questions, real quick, before we end? Um, with the soil test, do you get those ones you can buy off the shelf? Um, you can, that would be classified, I would categorize that in the unreliable information category. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, it's because one is heavily technician dependent. In other words, it's heavily dependent on the person using that test. And the extractives that are utilized, the methodology, um, it's so variable that the, the numbers might come out close, to right, they might not, and, and again, you're back to unreliability again. We're, we're going to talk about what is, because honestly, just like everything, there's only a remnant left in this, on this planet of a reliable place to get an accurate soil test done. What about the type of plants that are growing on the, on the pot that you're actually using, like weeds and Yes, the question was, can you utilize um, weeds, the, the plants that are growing? We call them weeds because they're growing where we don't want them to grow. But nature is actually trying to restore stability with these plants. Um, some of them are very deformed, and it's because they're deformed that they have the capacity to extract things out of a system that nothing else can. And that's why they proliferate and other things die off, because they, they have the capability of doing that. So yes, uh, uh, if you ask that question again, I'm trying to think where it'd be good to put that in. There are some books written on this. You can actually buy these books and you can look at somebody who's done the work. Okay, if you've got dandelion grown in your lawn, um, if you've got thistle, bindweed, you, you could go into all these. There are certain conditions that cause those to proliferate. And uh, I can tell a story about a ranch in Canada thistle, if you remind me, that is a very good illustration of, of, of this, um, this process. Um, did you have a question too? Yeah, how, with the soil testing, how often would you Can you ask that question when we start up again? And I'll save the answer because it's not a fast answer. So just save the question and we'll answer it again. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.